think I should just get out of the way. Man, that is so good. And God, we invite you now to encourage us so that we have places and can find those places where we can stand and encourage ourselves. Be with us now, we do ask God. Amen. What a powerful, powerful message that was. I have to tell you, as I was looking over the worship bulletin for today, I got pretty peaked because we're, we're bringing in, as you can see, elements to help us remember. This is Black History Month, and we, we want to reflect and remember the struggles of our African-American descent people and, and learn from some of these because there is much to learn when we reflect on history. That opening hymn, I love this. It says, Facing the sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Sing a song full of faith. These are moments where we get to reflect on people who have had moments of courage in their lives, and we can listen to those moments and be informed by them, and we can get our own sense of courage around that. I love this time of the year, and we would not want to um, let this moment go by without saying that our gospel ensemble will be celebrating Black History Month in concert on February 21st. Yes, 4 o'clock. Cassandra's making sure I know the time, 4 o'clock, so you'll want to be here for that. But I encourage you also to look in the bulletin as we go throughout this month and, and let these stories inform you and, and give you encouragement. I think that there's something to this, too, as I was reflecting about history and about moments in time and the way that they can indeed give us glimpses of vocation and voice. They can strengthen us. I think that the, the, the thing to notice here is that we have these pivotal moments in time. I like to call them resurrection moments, that if we would ever stop to listen to our own story, we would find these moments and we would be able to hear from them the calling within defining moments in our life. We've all had them. For you hear people in their conversation, they'll say things like, because we segment our life in chapters by some of these defining moments. You'll hear people say things like, well, before my surgery or before that accident, or they'll say, after, you know, my father died or after the birth of my firstborn child. You know, so we put things in these boxes because we know that they were relevant moments in our stories. And, and I think we should take time to reflect on these moments. There's a, um, if any of you have ever sat in a uh, therapist chair, I'm not telling on myself, or in a spiritual, <laughs> or, sorry, Leslie, or in a, <laughs> or in a spiritual director's chair, uh, you would hear, most of the time they'll encourage you, well, let's start from the beginning. They'll say, let's, let's look back. And let's look at different points in your life and let's listen to what your life is saying. When I was in seminary, I was introduced to a book by Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak. And my spiritual director also guided me to this book. He, he, I love this book because he, what he talks about is if you really will take the time to read the own, your own pages of your story, it will help inform you. It will give you a sense of vocation and voice. Listen, listen to what he says. Vocation does not come from willfulness. It comes from listening. I must listen to my life and try to understand what it is truly about, quite apart from what I would like it to be about, or, or my life will never really represent anything real in the world, no matter how earnest my intentions. 
The insight is hidden in the word vocation itself, which is rooted in the Latin word voice. Vocation does not mean a goal I pursue. It means a calling that I hear. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen to my life telling me who I am. I must listen for the truths and the values of the heart of my own identity. Not the standards by which I must live, but the standards by which I cannot help but live if I am living my own life. There's some powerful truth in that. Defining moments in our life. Moments that we should be listening to, to inform us, to give us those encouraging moments, to, to give us those moments where we can remember a resurrection moment. In our scriptures today, there are three very defining moments for Isaiah, for Paul, and for the Christian church. And I want us to start with Isaiah's. I, I find his to be a little frightening. <laughs> Isaiah, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, in a robe whose hem is filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. The pivots on the threshold shook, and the voices of those who called in the house was filled with smoke. Now, okay, we've had some pretty powerful worship in here. And we even actually had smoke one Sunday, but it was just the AC that had gone bad. <laughs> but imagine, seriously, imagine. You come to the temple, you come to the, the sanctuary, and you, you know, you do hope to encounter God. It's not that we don't expect God to meet us here, but you know, you also come to kind of peel away from your life, to be renewed, refreshed, to meet a new friend, to get to know old friends again. It's a time to just come and sit. And here is Isaiah, he goes to the temple and he sits in worship, a lot of stuff going on in his world. And lo and behold, the hymn of God comes brushing through and filled the space. And then there's these angelic beings with wings. A defining moment for Isaiah. I think it would be for us all. In that moment, he heard, he, he encountered the holy. And that space became sacred for him. And it was so defining for him that in that moment, Every other moment beyond that would be looked through this lens because it became part of his voice and vocation. He listened to this moment. And we know that because in that moment, he, he felt so awestruck that he said, well, I'm not worthy. But then he was able to experience the depth of grace and the flash of a coal on his lips. And in that forgiveness and an encounter of the holy, he probably said something that an hour before that he never thought he would say. When God said, well, whom shall I send? Send me! The hymn of God filled his world and shook it. A defining moment for Isaiah. In our next scripture, we, we see a defining moment uh, by Paul. He, he mentions it somewhat indirectly, but he talks about an encounter with this Jesus. He talks about the fact that, that he had a living experience, an encounter on the road. We all know a little bit about Paul's story, but I'll fill you in. He is a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He's grown up in the, in the religious custom of his day. He really thinks 
And he's taken this on and he has become this in his life. And he really believes he's doing all the right things. He believes it so strongly that he's persecuting anybody that stands outside of that faith. So he's on this road to Damascus to do this very thing. When, when all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He is so blinded by his faith that it takes Jesus blinding him in that moment to have this resurrection moment to a new faith. It's so powerful for him, he changes his name. He takes on a vocation and a, and a voice. He moves from persecutor to proclaimer of this Jesus. It's a defining moment for Paul. Defining moment for Paul. And, but the real, the real piece here that I love to reflect on is the fact that Isaiah's moment, which gave Isaiah strength to be a voice for the voiceless and hope for the hopeless. Even though he never encountered that in his life, his moment mattered in Paul's life. Because Paul was able to take all of who he was, and even though he had to die to being the, the holder of the law, and the law keeper, it still informed him of the freedom that he could proclaim in God. And so it, I love how a defining moment in one story can be so defining in another. But the real point here is that Paul is trying to get the Christian church to remember their defining moment. So he's trying to connect them to the whole thing. Listen to how he says it. In chapter 15, he says, Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which you also being saved, you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message. I have handed on to you as first importance what I in turn received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive. We see here Paul doing something very important. He is trying to get the Christian church to remember why they even gather. You see, the, the, the context of this letter that he's written, is it's kind of towards the end, but he has dealt with a lot of things, you know, different behaviors in the church. They're asking him questions about how to be this church. He sends them the, the love sonnet of all love sonnets. You know, you just love each other. You know, come on. It's not about what you eat. It's about what, <laughs> it's about what you feel. Well, here he goes one step further, and he says, and it's about what you believe. It's about the hope for which you stand. And then he, he's, he's very sure to connect them all the way through history and herstory and say, remember it, for it's what gives you the ability to move forward in your life. It's like a bedrock for which you can stand in those hard times and position yourself. He, he, when he says back in the scriptures, you have to feel that he's taking us all the way back to the garden. Helping us remember this God who walked with us as the sun would set in the garden. And then, you know, we being who we are, we decided that's a great place, but I wonder what's on the other side of this garden, and off we, off we move out. But this God, if we look over the story, our history, we see that this God still pursues us and will always pursue us. And then there's this Jesus this Emmanuel God with us who meets us right smack dab in history, meets us there. 
And it's in his life that we're able to experience God walking with us. And it's so relevant that our God is a crucified God. It's relevant for us to take notice of that. Because what's happening here is God is saying, I will die with you these little deaths. I will have these moments too. It wasn't necessarily a promise to, to take the tomb away. But it, what it was was, I got a light and I'll lead the way. And I'll go through here. And I'll sit there for my three days, which many of us have sit in our dark places for longer than that. But we can be... What's happening here, the foundation that he is trying to remind them in is the resurrection. It's kind of the, the crutch. It is kind of the thing that can hold us up in our most confusing moments. Now, Easter is a few months away, but resurrection is so a part of the Christian faith. It's not believing necessarily in a certain event. It's, a be it's believing that God can be trusted, that we can enter those dark places, and that we will ultimately see the light we will experience hope and a hand will be there and we will get to the other side. Jesus shows us that God is with us, was with us, is with us, and will be with us through it all. It's the defining of our hope. It's the things that give us the ability to do these uh, defining moments and resurrections. I, I like these three defining moments because they're, they're so different. They give us the opportunity to truly reflect on where um, we've had these moments in our life, whether it was in the sanctuary or by surprise, or whether it was just a time when we didn't have anything else but what we had hoped for. Maybe we couldn't see it. Maybe we might not even be able to believe it at all times, but we knew it was there. These are defining moments. I want to try to make this real for us, so I want us to reflect on somebody that we can kind of in the here and now that can show us kind of how this works, reviewing the stories of our life. If I say the word Oprah, I don't even have to say the last name, right? We all, you know you've made it when you've, you, you go by first name basis. Oprah, as we all know, is, is an American television host, producer, and philanthropist. Now she um, has her own talk show, and so she lives very vulnerable. You see much of her story uh, all the time. But what we know about Oprah is that she's willing to listen to the pages of her life. We know this because of moments of strength that she has encountered. She has, um, just, is just to show you where she's come from, she was born into poverty, she was a, to a teenage single mother, and she was raised in the inner city in Milwaukee. She experienced hardship through her childhood, including being raped at the age of nine and becoming pregnant at 14, and then lost her son at infancy. She was sent to live with the man she calls her father. But while doing so, she landed a job, and we know how that story goes. Somewhere, Oprah was able to find strength in all of those moments. And she listened to her story, and she let it inform her. And a good example is that a couple of years ago, she was under persecution. She would need the strength of her own story and belief system to get her through this, she was facing civil charges of fraud, slander, defamation, and negligence. She was publicly accused of lying and manipulating the truth to sensationalize the story about mad cow disease in the beef industry. She was, her honor was at stake here. All of who she was was at stake here. And she was having these moments where she had to go off to Amarillo and decide how she would 
find her truest vocation and voice. Um, she had a friend at the time, Dr. Phil. He was a st strategic person, you know, so he was there to help her with that. He was also a therapist. So I have a feeling he may have had conversations. I don't know, Dr. Phil's not much about talking about the past, but maybe he had some of those moments where, when he worked with her where he said, let's just start from the beginning. But uh, what I'd like now is uh, for Mark to play Dr. Phil for us and give in Dr. Phil's words from his, <laughs> his book, Life Strategies, a little insight to what Phil saw. The private opera and the television opera are about as close to the same as anyone might imagine, but no one had ever seen her in a situation like this. In some ways, the experience of this trial was foreign to her. In other ways, it was the same old test, different classroom. Here was an extremely wealthy black female whom they were portraying as the beef industry's scurrilous enemy, trapped in Amarillo, Texas, the white male-dominated, undisputed beef capital of the world. All that Oprah could say, all she could feel, was that it was not fair. I can't believe this is happening. This is so unfair. Surely this isn't happening to me. It can't be real. Why is this happening to me? There has to be some reason for all of this. Sitting on the floor across from this woman I had come to admire so very much, I searched my mind and heart for the right thing to say. We had been talking, analyzing, and working for some time now, but Oprah continued to struggle with the why of it all. What I knew was that regardless of why, we were here and she was in the crosshairs. Finally, I just took her hand and said, Oprah, look at me right now. You'd better wake up, girl, and wake up now. It is really happening. You'd better get over it and get in the game or these good old boys are going to hand you your ass on a platter. Bleep. As, <laughs> oh, I wasn't fast enough. Bleep. Bleep, bleep. As direct, as direct as I am, it was hard for me to be so blunt with her, but Oprah knew me and she knew that my interests were her interests. She looked me in the eye and with a resolve I had not heard in all of our previous conversations, she said, no, they will not. I truly believe that at that precise moment, the cattlemen lost their case. Until that instant, Oprah had been fretting whether this deal was fair or unfair, rather than accepting either way, it simply was. She had been philosophically distracted instead of focusing on what she must do in order to win. From the very beginning, she believed deeply in the rightness of her actions. She believed passionately in her First Amendment freedom to hold an open debate on public health and safety including our food supply, whether the mega-millionaire beef factories liked it or not. But the viciousness of the attack on her person and profession had so unsettled her that she stopped being Oprah Winfrey. She fought back from her head, but not from her heart. That night, Oprah faced her demons, <clears throat> some of them spawned by the trial itself, a struggle that she later came to see as a microcosm of her whole life, some resurrected from years gone by. She had a choice. She could continue to resist accepting the situation because she didn't like it, or she could grab onto it and stand up for herself and those being attacked with her. Once she took off the blinders and dealt with the real deal rather than debating it, she was back. She did take the stand, and she looked the jury squarely in the eye, told the truth, and told it effectively. Likewise, she looked her accusers in the eye, and her message to them was clear. Gentlemen, if you have a problem with that show, I'm your girl. The buck stops here. If you have a problem, see me and leave my people alone. You wanted me here? Well, you got me. Take your best shot. I am not running. 
I am not settling, and I will not be intimidated. Oprah Winfrey is a formidable woman. Oprah Winfrey is a winner. And once she committed herself to working the problem and defending herself and what she believed in, her accusers were toast, signed, sealed, and delivered. Gotta love that. So that's how it works. We come across these moments in time. Sometimes we're gonna do better than others. But really, I think what I'm asking you to do today is think about those moments, to look back on your own life, turn the pages of your story, and get in touch with those places that have informed you, that are molding you. And be sure that you're not letting the moment define you, but you're defining the moment for yourself by listening to your own life. And we get to do this with such comfort and grace because we get to realize that our stories are connected to the greater story. And we get to have that. We basically get to hear, um, I like to take that last bit that Oprah said there, we have this Jesus, this God, that is standing there, has faced our accuser and looked him in the eye and said, the buck stops here. <laughs> the buck stops here. You can't hurt my people. If you got anything to say, you come to me. Let my people go. Let them live their lives. And I will walk with them. And I will walk with you. I want us to do this work together because I have a feeling you're not going to go home and do it. I trust my God, but I don't trust my church. <laughs> okay, so I want you to get, I wonder if I can get Anthony to play a few bars. I want you to get comfortable. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think. Turn a few pages. Turn a few pages of your story. Find some moments. God moments. Have you had resurrection? Have you ever come to the sanctuary and found God? Felt God? The hem of God's robe? storm right now and you need to stand on something solid your God moment is resurrection gracious God Holy Spirit Speak to us. Speak to us now. Help us remember those moments in time where you have been forming us. Where our story connects to your story. Connect us, God, to you, to each other, and to our voice. 
in this we pray. Amen. Let your light shine. And where do we want it to shine? All in my house. Will you join us? All in my house. Gonna let it shine. Don't have to make it shine. 